Any views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and not of their employer. Welcome to the Admin Admin Podcast, episode 97, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm John. I'm Stuart. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we do a deep dive into observability. We talk about structured login, DevOps, and SRE. And we also talk about on-call and alert fatigue. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. And we are very fortunate tonight to have Ewan with us. Ewan works with me, uh, and he had very generously offered to come on and talk to us a little bit tonight. Um, so we're going to start with observability and see where the conversation goes from there. Ewan, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. So hi, everybody. I'm Ewan. I've been working in IT for too many years to count. Um, and I live in the northeast of England. And as, as John said, I discovered admin admin uh, through John because I now work with him, which is awesome. Yeah, I think I, I think I might even have brought it up in the interview which you were sitting on. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, this is this is true. But yeah, so uh, we were talking a little while ago about some of the stuff that's come up in recent episodes, and uh, Ewan said that uh, he had some opinions on observability, and, and did I want to know about them? And I said, whoa, 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 don't talk to me about it. Talk to our podcast audience. So Jerry and Stu, you've you've done quite a lot. You've done more stuff to do with application stuff. What's your kind of view on observability? And then maybe Ewan can tell us where we're wrong. Bearing in mind, I know nothing about well, I know very little about observability. You guys are more likely to let's see let's see where our differences are, and we can we can work it from there. So, Stu, how about you start? Yep, sounds good to me. So, yeah, for me, observability is, I mean, it's it's kind of coming more and more to the fore because of things like microservices and trying to when. Before when stuff was in a monolith, um, you would look at, I would monitor this application by monitor one machine or maybe two at most that, you know, it fails over to. Um, observability now has become more of a hot topic because a lot of services are now split down into a container here that does one thing, a container there that does one thing, a container that does another thing, and trying to link them all together to say, um, how do I tell that this is uh, functioning correctly? This has, you know, I'm not processing any errors, that kind of thing. At which point observability is now, let's say, becoming a bit of a hot topic to say things like, you know, I need to be able to get metrics out of this one to see what this is doing. I need to get logs out of it, but I need to be able to correlate them logs as well. So you've got something called a trace ID, uh, which can trace a request through uh, multiple containers. Then you can say, right, this container it went, went to this container, then it went to this one, and that's where it slowed down. Um, and yeah, that's that's from my understanding of it. And um, yeah, there's there's the whole three pillars of observ- observability, which is metrics, logs, and tracing. If you talk to some of the people from Parker, for example, they will say there's a fourth one, which is continuous profiling, but that's just, yeah, a bit of a by-the-by at the moment. So, yeah, that's um, – I'll, I'll stop there because I'm starting to witter on you. Do you. Do you have anything different to that, on Jerry, or – I'm coming coming at it from the position that I'd still like to actually set up a an observability stack. So Prometheus, I've kind of done. I'm not particularly au okay with the configuration language, if you can call it that, or DSL or whatever. We might go into this in a future podcast, but um, I, I, th- I thought I was about to set up that kind of thing at, uh, at where I was working, but I don't think that's going to be able to happen be able to happen anymore so 
um, something for the future. So I've been tangentially involved with observability as, as opposed to the more sort of traditional forms of monitoring. And there I'm coming uh, from the point of view of Nagios, which, you know, everyone of a certain certain age has has at least come into contact with. (laughs) And uh, I use Sensu as well uh, as a kind of, uh, you know, transition between that Nagios era and the current sort of Prometheus and other things um, kind of era. So yeah, that's 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 my kind of take on it. Really, it's it's more about um, monitoring VMs. Uh, well, actually, in the old days, it was monitoring bare metal, but more recently, monitoring VMs. Um, the other th- thing which we mentioned in a previous podcast is Net Data and, and Net Data Cloud, which is a, a really quite good out of the box solution and it's free yeah it's uh, free as in beer so uh, by the way i'm not being sponsored by uh, net data <laughs> <laughs> but I, I use it quite a lot so yeah that's that's where i'm coming from really less on the app observability side and more more on the kind of just monitoring um applications really right so how how far how far out from your view of things are we, Ewan? I don't think massively. Um, you know, I think for me, observability has been a, a journey. And Stuart, I think, put it quite nicely that it's starting to come to the fore a lot. You're hearing the term a lot more now than you were before, and and that's kind of why I say it was a journey. So I, in my very first job in in IT, I took a gap year before I went to university, and my one of my jobs was install Nagios. Uh, you know, I, I learn about checks. I learn about how they work. Uh, and then post-university, I uh, went on to monitor big uh, sets of physical infrastructure. Um, and it started to kind of put the idea in my head that actually there's maybe a better way of doing this. So then I went to a cloud native company and and the server count went up again. You know, it's that move to microservices. Yep. It's if I had a monolith, then it would be two machines, and I could go, oh, the CPU is a bit high on that that server. I'll I'll log in with my SSH session, and I will find out what's going on. Or you know, if I can't log in because it's completely um, broken, then I will walk down to the server room and I'll get the console out and and I'll figure out what's going on with it. But in in cloud and with microservices, that's just not possible you know mm-hmm. if you have a, a set of servers uh, you know my the per- person i was working for before uh, my current job with john uh, they were running maybe 500 servers for a single application in some cases you, you can't understand how uh, how a request is handled by 500 servers um, or or even which server within the entire fleet handled that particular request so you start to kind of have to go, well, I need to gather that data. I have to centralize everything. And so you ended up with the, those central logging solutions that you, you saw maybe five, 10 years ago, where it was just about, you know, send us your logs, stick an agent on the box and, and you know, we'll, we'll just grab everything and, and you can just search it. Um, so then you started to have to learn regex, right? You, you started to have to kind of uh, understand your log files in in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> it's interesting, uh, Stuart. Was it you that mentioned the three pillars when you were yes. talking earlier? Yeah, uh, I've I've seen them referred to as the three browser tabs <laughs> because you you ended up in the space where you went, oh, I need to gather my logs. Well, I also need some metrics. 
oh, now I've got some some APM or some tracing. I'll, I'll pull that in as well. Um, and you start to get this bulk of data, but it's not really ac- very accessible, right? You can't derive insight across all of the data that you're gathering out of your your systems and your services. So then, for me, observability starts with being able to gain insights and ask questions of metric data, of log data, of, of your traces that provides a, a holistic view of that data and, and a correlated view, right? That That's, for me, the key to observability is not just, I gather this data, because if you just gather the data, then you end up with this this three browser tabs of observability where an engineer sat there at two o'clock in the morning going, oh, now what happened? Oh, I need to find the log line that, that was at 2 a.m. and I need to find the, the metric or what did that do there? You know, I've heard stories of engineers holding rulers up to their monitor to try and figure out what's correlated, right? So for me, that's that's the core of observability. But I think observability as a practice and as an approach has uh, far-reaching consequences for how we do operations in IT. Yeah, agreed on that one. I suppose that there's a point there as well, as you say, with the whole, you know, you're not just looking at one or two servers being down anymore. You could... You know, if you're on call, you can handle a couple of alerts. If you know one of the boxes going down, yes, it's a problem. But you know, we'll log in and fix that. You know, one box. Now, if you know, pop, you know, two thirds of your containers have gone down, your phone will never stop stop going. So it's why things like, um, uh, you know, Google started pioneering the whole um, SRE um, model um, initially, and now it's you know been. Um, adopted in many other places and you know I'm, I'm an SRE myself now as well so you know I'm, I'm kind of part of that too and it's it's the whole looking at rather than looking at a you know what every single actual metric you can find every single alert that's possible you start just boiling it down to um, uh, G- Google call it the golden signals but there's also another um, another couple called use and the red method but it's essentially boiling it down into what's the minimum amount of information I can get from the metrics to then say right that's indicating an issue it's not necessarily that is the issue but at least you can tell me where I, where I start to look next so you know if there's such and uh, so many errors if you know I've got got um you know i'm starting to get saturated on my resources that kind of thing you can start going right i know there's this many errors but actually you know um, my resource usage is fine it's not probably not going to be because i've not got enough infrastructure it's going to be something else and that that's the kind of thing now it's, it's less about what's the exact alarm it's more indicate something that i can then go on and start looking at yeah so i've never really done the the sre job role um you know i was i was a devops engineer um not that i particularly like that as a job title um but (laughs) but nominally a a devops engineer and i would think in terms of kpis and they would inform my my service level objectives or slos yeah is that kind of a similar approach then uh, yes, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's something that um, where I am now is starting to implement quite heavily, and um, it's what we've um, used a couple places before as well. But it's the whole um, again another Google thing of uh, this is called an SLI, which is a service level indicator, and it's basically to say, oh, let's think. So you've got SLIs and SLOs, and they're your objectives. So your SLI would be. I, so many 200 errors um, within an hour. Um, and then you would just say, right, okay, my objective is to say, I want to see, um, you know, 
so many 200s and no errors or, you know, a certain percentage of errors kind of things. You know, you allow one out of every thousand um, HTTP errors. That's your objective, at which point you're saying, right, my indicator is the errors. My objective is this is how many I want to see, at which point you start to boil it down into, um, again, as I say, bring it back to a few things that can then indicate where the error is rather than necessarily saying oh, exactly the error is. One of the biggest issues um, I've tended to find in the past is a lot of people get caught up on, oh, this problem happened, therefore we need to monitor for that problem. The issue there is you're only monitor for what's happened before, you're not monitoring for what you haven't seen. Whereas if you boil it down into you know the actual basics of errors, um, saturation, latency, and what's the other one now? Traffic level. Um, if you're looking at that, you're then literally saying, right, the problem is going to be one of these, and then I know where to look after that. Yeah, I think uh, you, you hit on something really interesting there, which is, I do completely agree with, which is I, I've seen lots of times in the past where people go, oh, that that went wrong this one time, so I'm going to put an alert on it. Yeah. Or there is this thing that because I'm an IT professional and I've got lots of years of experience, that ought to be important to me. You know, it might be CPU utilization. Yeah. But actually, what is the impact to my key business drivers? You know, if, if this particular instance or set of instances has high CPU, is it actually a problem? Mm-hmm. You know, is it is it going to uh, impact sales in my web uh, web shop or is it going to mean that I can't deliver this product from this batch job at the the right moment in time you know it's not just is there something going on with my infrastructure but is there something that impacts my business going on with my infrastructure yes I've heard the term error budget which I think applies here which is like you can tolerate I mean uh, distributed systems are always kind of on the verge of failure anyway (laughs) so um, yes, it's just about managing that rate of failure. Yeah, the entire point behind an error bu- budget is to say, you know, you can ha- you've got an, an objective you're trying to reach. You know, was on, on about the service level objectives. You can say, you know, if there's one in every thousand um, requests has an error, and you've had a million um, requests, you can handle around. Oh, I can't. I can't think of the scale off the top of my head, but I think that's a hunt. Is that a thousand errors? Something like that. Anyway, if you've gotten to a point that, you know, you're only hitting 500 errors um, per hour kind of thing out of a million, you've got a budget to say, I can handle some more errors. So I can actually throw some more features out, you know, have, handle a little bit of downtime. Whereas if actually you're going over that all the time, you know, you're getting consistently getting 1,100 errors out of every um, million. Then at that point, you've got to start thinking, right, I need to work on my application to make it more stable so we're not getting these errors and then I can go back to rollout features and it starts to become more of a not so much a negotiation but almost a a way of indicating features are now it's now possible to roll out new features and if we roll out new features that's great but the, the application is performing so poorly that no one will care because they won't be using it anymore. Mm. And it, it starts to, you know, draw that line in the sand of let's make sure the application is good enough to take more features rather than just, you know, um, you know the, the old method of no features, features, features when it comes from, you know, uh, product management and um, slow down, slow down when it comes from change management. It's kind of, you know, sort of stuck, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, I mean, that, that's really interesting because, you know, that's the constant battle, isn't it? It's like mm-hmm. stability and new features. So yeah. it's always 
the way with software. Yeah, yeah and it, it's the whole thing with the SRE model as well. You need buying from the entire business, including you know your product teams, including your marketing, because they're the ones that want to market new features and bring more business in. They're the ones that want to deploy the f- new features. But if you can, you know. Um, you know, quantify if we deploy this new feature. Actually, we've had a few outages this month, or we've at least, you know, it's not performed as well. If you roll that out and take it down, the customers are are actually going to start losing business. You just go right. There's an indicator now. There's a there's a quantification of the problem, not just a. Uh, it feels bad to roll something out out now. You've got something that can you know work for everyone, but you do need that buying from the business to accept that kind of model as well. I think you also need that model of like quick releasing uh, so you need to have that pipeline in place that so way you can roll back or you know you can you can release new features fast if you want to or you can stop releasing them uh, and you've just got all that uh, in place you know you, you need that as well yeah. to make this SRE bit work um, I wanted to ask um, just about the tooling you might use for this kind of thing because we're, we're talking in quite abstract terms but in, in sort of day-to-day real-world use how would you be monitoring this graphing it making those correlations you were talking about earlier so uh, i mean i know aws really well so aws has a range of tools so cloudwatch logs you've got um your um cloudwatch metrics and you've got x-ray for for your traces um but there are also things like prometheus so you know you, you can send everything to prometheus graph it interrogate it um those sorts of tools are the, probably the things that I'd be looking to use. Um, there are obviously other tools out there, but it, it's really about being able to bring everything together in a single tool for me um, or single suite of tools that work really well together because you don't want to get into that thing that I touched on earlier, which is the the three browser tabs of observability um, where you're kind of flicking between stuff. Would that look like um, you know some scripts that, that takes some Prometheus output and then pipe it to this other thing, which will then alert you, or how would that work? It's more about having, you know, say, a a good example might be something like Datadog or Honeycomb, potentially, where it's kind of an all-in-one solution, so it takes care of all of it. One thing to point out recently, Prometheus has added something called exemplars, which literally means... um, at this point of um, you know a, an issue happening, you can um, relate it to a trace. So if you've got something like Jaeger or potentially Honeycomb or something similar, you can then just say, right, okay, I've reached this point in the graph and there's a trace that's also showing a potential issue. I can click on that and go straight to it. Now, that's not the same as having an all-in-one solution that's just got it straight there, but at least it's kind of, you know, leading to, um, you know, linking them together, but just not, you know, directly within the same product kind of thing. I guess it comes down to inter- interrupter in, in can't speak interoperability and um, you know the web how the web works <laughs> you know you, if you if you can sort of deep link to another service and everything works and that's great. <laughs> yeah, so it, for example, it might be you you're looking at a trace that was particularly interesting and you say actually I need to see the log output for this trace. It's being able to go. I know what what log lines are associated with it because I had a trace ID in the the log line that allows me to just search for that information and I can go categorically those are the log lines that are associated with this trace. Or maybe you can jump to a timestamp that's associated with the that trace and you know that that hit that log line in in your 
Oops, I'm about to see stat. So, so time is great, but if you've got 500 servers all producing log lines, you know you can't guarantee that your log line from server A at two o'clock is the same trace as uh, the same machine as the trace at two o'clock. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Ha- having something more concrete like a trace ID is is going to be more helpful in my experience than just going. I'm looking for this time here because this time here might appear 500 times across your 500 different servers, right? I think the thing that I struggled with most when I was looking kind of very, uh, very off the cuff uh, observability stuff was that, that, that you're supposed to effectively add a tr- that trace ID to all the logs that relate to that particular request. And I think the bit that I struggled with was kind of at what point do you like, it does the first machine that receives the request does that create the trace ID and that then propagate it to everything after that point? Or is there some system outside that produces that trace ID? Or I don't, I don't really kind of, I, I guess I just don't get how, how the conversation runs, if that makes sense. Yeah. So typically these tools, the first time they get to a, an application running tracing that trace ID will be generated and then that will be used and passed on to all of the downstream applications. And as long as that header gets picked up by the downstream application and, and passed on again, you will you will get that entire flow through the uh, application. And then you, you might have um, different events within that trace, so different bits of data. So you might be particularly interested in calls to your Mongo database or your um, your uh, MySQL database, so you might put some detail in around that, but that's just coming from a particular application that's talking to those things and happens to have that trace ID attached to all of that data. Yes, I suppose the point to make there is it's usually appended as a header somewhere in the request, whether that's an HTTP header or otherwise, it's something that just gets appended to your request. So when the next one gets the um, pack it through there will be a header in there that says this is the trace id and that's the one you're going to use right that's going from microservice to microservice yeah exactly so yeah at that point that will then get you know uh, I, I suppose one point we're not we've not uh, touched on is instrumenting code and that's kind of where this comes from is the whole idea of um, now, whatever you're integrating with, you add something to your code to say that um, it's going to, um, you know, expose Prometheus metrics. If you're all, if you're adding tracing code, you're adding the ability to append trace IDs to whatever uh, traffic you're processing, and then the next um, application, the stack, also should be instrumented with the same tracing code. So again, whether that's Honeycomb, whether that's Datadog, whether it's Open Telemetry, what whatever it is, that will then understand this request has come in with a trace. ID, I can now use that trace ID rather than generating a new one because I wasn't the first one to get the request. And then when you start correlating that in whatever system you're doing so, this trace ID is the bit that says it's been to this container, it's been to this container, this container sent something off to SQL. It took it took four hours for the query to come back. Now it can't, and that's where the problem was, or you know, it it carries on that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the the advantage of that cross microservice view is you can basically build a big flame graph of your entire request so that you know exactly what happened. You know, if it's uh, going away and checking its auth grants 600 times because the token's really big, then you, you can pick through that and understand exactly what's happening when that request is made. 
And I think for me, that touches on another element of observability, which is not just being able to go, um, something's wrong with my system as a whole, but it's the, about those gnarly edge cases. You know, the customer that rings up and says, oh, my request to your service when it was a full moon and um, in in late spring, you know, the, those really odd edge cases that nobody really understands why they happen. It's about being able to dig into those and go, oh, now I know that that, that user had an ID of X, Y, Z. I can go into my logging system or my observability system and say, give me all of the the logs or the traces for that user and start to dig into, okay, so why is their experience different to user B? Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, I've been guilty in the past of, well, every other user is fine, so it must be your fault or something or you've not come in right. And, you know, this is going back to, you know, many years back to my networking days, but, you know, the ability to say, right, this exact thing happened to this customer it, that's where the problem was and now it's actually let, uh, shown up another issue and there's there's also the, the other side as well which isn't um, always about things are broken it's you can optimize now because you can see potentially you know rather than oh things just take a little longer to the database sometimes you can actually correlate and just say well, it takes longer on you know on the half moon or whatever you know to use the same analogy and you know it's a half moon and the werewolves are out kind of thing and they should have you know they should have changed back by now but anyway the tra- the trace now shows that um ah actually it it you know we're we're hitting some weird um timestamp bug or something like that or we're hitting something like that rather than just oh it's just something that happens every so often you actually be able to dig into and say we can now proactively make better changes rather than just, you know, when something goes wrong, we'll just all hands on deck and hope we find something. So if you've got tooling that collects those logs, collects those timestamps, you can kind of get a view as to what is typical behavior. Do any of the tools actually say, right, okay, that's a typical database connection, but this one's an outlier because it's running you know, five microseconds longer than the one which normally takes one microsecond. Or this one's an outlier because we're getting, you know, 300K of data back instead of, instead of you know, 500 bytes. Or is that not a thing that people look for? That's a really good question. So I've seen tools that will give you kind of show me all of the traces in the 95th percentile that that sort of of query i could um I, i've seen before but i think it, it just varies from tool to tool exactly what you can alert on and, right. and things like that um you know some tools will go you need to go and turn that into a metric and then you can alert on that metric those sorts of things are, are possible as well I mean, for me, <laughs> this kind of comes back to, in reality, all observability is really an event. So whether it's a log, a trace, or a metric, it's it's just an event that happens within your infrastructure. So you could have a, an event that is simultaneously a log line, a metric, and a trace in theory. Not that I, I think many tools support that view, but actually at the core of it it's an event so it's it's how do i want to analyze the events that are going on in my system um do i want to aggregate them in some way you know give me the average latency or the the 95th percentile 
body size. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's kind of it's really variable, so it's hard to generalize about whether yeah that's a good idea or not. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you got the whole thing of you know if it's if it's possible mathematically to get that kind of value out and then you know get the anomalies either side of it, then it is possible. But yeah, anything beyond that, you're probably talking about you know cloud hosted stuff that's got AI running that can predict it for you at that point. But yeah, that starts to get into um, you know per product problems at that point rather than um, whether everything can do it. So you've mentioned metrics, logs, and events. Is it worth just quickly clarifying what those I mean, so a log line effectively is is the sort of thing that you'd see from, you know, your standard operating system boot up or um your Apache or Nginx logs for HTTP or something like that. What's a what's what what would you class as a metric? So it's it's something with a value that you could chart would probably be how I'd describe it. So taking the the latency um, example, you know, it'll be measured in some form of unit, milliseconds probably, and and you can graph it over time. So you have lots and lots of requests. They're all going through and they will have an individual amount of time that they took, so an individual latency. And typically people aggregate them and graph them. But it's, a, it's some form of, of numerical value that changes over time. Okay, so so we've got logs got metrics what was the third one was it was it was it events or was traces. it traces traces so what's a trace then you're asking all the difficult questions aren't you, John? <laughs> so so like i've seen things like core dumps which have got traces in them which is like um this this operation went from this machine to this from this function to this function and then went from this function to this function is that is that a trace or is there something else that I'm missing. A trace is that correlated journey through your application or your distributed system. So it's it's about information about your request across lots of different systems. So for example, your trace might contain some segments that describe what functions it spent time in, how long they took, um, but then it's correlated across. So it's, it's that I have a single request. I can view that data across all of my, uh, my distributed application, so I can see the the entire flow of data with some detail about what each application is doing to that particular request. It, it's often essentially JSON underneath the hood. Um, you know, it's it's just a an arbitrary structured data, and that's kind of why I say everything is really just an event because the core of it you could describe a metric in a piece of json you can describe a log in a piece of json and you can describe a J- uh, trace as a piece of json you know at, at the core of it they're just bits of structured data and uh, we can get into the whole kind of what are structured logs uh, that might be an interesting thing to come on to in a moment but at the at the core of it everything is an event everything is just a structured piece of data that has some meaning to it um, you see it in AWS with embedded metric format, if you've come across that. So if you're sending some uh, logs to CloudWatch Logs, you can actually embed a piece of structured JSON into that, which will generate custom CloudWatch metrics without you having to call the CloudWatch API itself. So it's it's that sort of thing. Does that answer the question? Yeah. 
Right. Okay. So those so those three pieces you said there was. Uh, so Stu mentioned before there was a fourth pillar that sometimes people talk yeah, about. Yeah. So it's only just started getting talk about recently, and I think more than anything, it's because of the company who's doing it. But um, um, but it, in a way, not at the same time. So there's a company called Parker, um, and it's from um, a couple of people that were Prometheus maintainers and originally from Google. And one of the things that they said was um, they remember being at Google, and one of the things that you always had access to was something called t- continuous profiling. So what that would do is show you how much CPU is being used by your function. So, you know... Let's say, you know, you're running a Go binary or a Python script or something, that function that you're running, there's a way of correlating that and saying how much CPU did that use. Um, And then they were very surprised when they left Google and found nowhere else was doing it. And that's why they've come out with this thing called Parker. And it works with um, currently with Go stuff, but I think it's starting to work with other languages as well. Anything that I think anything that compiles is fine, but anything that runs in sort of like a JVM like Java does, or I think Python because it's interpreted doesn't quite work in it yet. But yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm starting to get a bit product specific at that point. I'm not, I've only used it briefly, but um, yeah, they're, they're trying to push this fourth pillar more than anything. So you can start saying, right, okay, actually, this function, um, we are wasting CPU cycles on this one. If we start to um, make that CPU, uh, sorry, make that function a bit more. Or, um, you know, a, a bit less resource intensive. We can actually start getting rid of some of our infrastructure because we don't need as much of that anymore. And um, now, whether that ends up taking, you know, uh, taking hold and it becomes a fourth pillar, I don't know. But yeah, they're, they're advertising it as such, and I kind of listening to them. I kind of agree; it's probably a very useful thing. I just don't know whether it's going to, you know, enter the public consciousness in the same way as the other three. But so, from the sounds of things, that's just another metric. In a sense, except it'll show you a flame graph as well of it, and it'll also show you know how much time it was spent on it. It's not just CPU; it'll show you. It'll show you. Um, eventually, they're looking at memory and um, disk usage and other resources. So yes, in a sense, it is kind of similar to um, a metric, but you've kind of got a historical view as well, um, and not in the same way as a metric. Um, it's literally just saying live what is happening now, not just you know over a period of time. I think the best thing on that one is actually if I link to the podcast that it was in, because it was there that I was listening to and thinking, actually, that makes a lot of sense. But um, yeah, um, as I say, big in Google doesn't seem to be big anywhere else. So whether it takes hold of the other stuff, uh, as is another matter entirely. So I know that I've seen or I've heard some places where as one of the metrics they would record, they'd record kind of like the running state of the operating system underneath the application so they could say this request took five seconds but the load on the the os uh, the load on the host machine was a hundred percent at the time that ran when it was at 65 percent the um, the request took three seconds or three microseconds but that is that is that something that you would typically track in this as well or is that is am i kind of wishing that I'd heard that that kind of conversation. So I think that that's where correlation comes in. You know, you have these different sources of information and being able to say, okay, well, at this the point at which this request was made, this is what my system metrics were doing. That's really valuable and really useful. 
because that allows you to correlate that one slow request with something that happened on the OS at that particular moment. But I think kind of forcing it into the same data structure isn't necessarily what you want to do. How would you how would you typically do that correlation? Would you be writing some uh, Python script to do that or something, or it, would you do that in it, within a tooling? Or like, I know there's probably many different ways to do it, but how would how how would, for instance, you uh, you and Stu do it? So for me, I'd look for the tooling to to help me with that. You know, I want to be able to correlate things. So it might be a dashboard, or it might be. Um, something else in the tooling that allows me to go right what was what data do i have about this particular timestamp or um this particular request so really i'm i'm looking for the tool to help me bring stuff together as opposed to me having to do heavy lifting or write some uh kind of odd code or something like that and i think that comes back to one of the other things that I alluded to right at the beginning, which was the impact that observability could have on the industry as a whole. So, um, I mean, I've, I've read the Phoenix project. Lots of other people will have read the Phoenix project. I think it's, it's Brett in the Phoenix project that knows everything that, you know, is, is this fount of all knowledge and everybody goes to him for help when things go wrong. And actually as an industry, I see that a lot i've seen that a lot in my career you know you you come into somewhere new and you don't have a clue what's going on because nothing's particularly well documented usually um you know who who likes writing documentation it's not something that people get excited about right Mm. um but it's also that kind of institutional knowledge you know, when I see this particular pattern of log messages, it means this this other thing that's completely unrelated has actually gone wrong. Or, you know, when I see that metric go to a high value, it means this other thing over here. It, you know, that, that sort of stuff is really hard to share. And I think observability, as we bring more data together will help us to tackle some of those kind of institutional knowledge pieces. So it's uh, being able to share a dashboard maybe, or being able to see what query somebody ran or, you know, all of those things are possible when you start to bring that data together. Uh, There's also the side there as well is hopefully with observability, you can um, start removing some of the, oh yeah, I've seen that issue before it was this. Well, now, rather than seeing that issue as this, you can just go, right, well, what caused it? So we can stop it from happening again because you now have the data available. Whereas before, because you weren't able to correlate it, it's just kind of, oh, we'll get round to it at some point. Um, And what I suppose one of the big things um, here is the whole alert fatigue problem that you have and, um, you know, being woken up in the middle of the night and half the time when you're woken up, you're looking at it going, oh, I don't need to worry about that. When something comes in that you can't do anything with, it's kind of pointless to alert on it. So um, I think observability, uh, sorry, observability as well is kind of helping with the idea of removing them. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. I've seen that before. Well, you now have the data to go fix it so that you don't have to see that anymore and you don't have to wake people up unnecessarily. And, you know, that that always comes back to, you know, the, the humans running it. If you can make the humans sleep more, um, they're going to work better anyway. So, you know, for me, this is going to help a lot as well. I, th- I think that uh, in, in a way that's, that, that's why I'm asking about the tooling so much is uh, because um, 
that is kind of the way that you share that that data or you know you know the you codify the um the things that break the system and then you can share that with others um but you do that through tooling so if you if everyone's using a certain tool you can say uh you can for instance share a link and say uh this this link has all the stuff you need to to, to see what i've just seen kind of thing yeah that that's why the tooling is important i mean as as admins we we use tooling all day long to <laughs> to do what we need to do right yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose a little bit on the tooling as well. I mean, Ian's kind of covered it a little bit on that, but um, some of the tooling that I've used in the past that kind of does this thing is um, I've used Datadog and New Relic. Both do um, similar-ish things. They don't entirely do the uh, all of this, but at the same time, they can correlate that. Um, you know, there was this CPU load, and at the same time, there was a log line that correlated to this. And then, um, yeah, you click into here, and it shows you what functions were running at the time and which ones were quite spendy. So, yeah, the um, place was at a, a while ago. Uh, it was quite big on using New Relic, and it was there that we found quite a lot of issues with, you know, long-running queries in, in SQL. Nine times out of ten, it was someone had created an index for the database, at which point it was going to run slow. But without that kind of tool, um, we just always assumed that it was a slow application. Um Partly because, uh, you know, what it was written in and partly because, you know, there's just an acceptance of, oh, it just uses a lot of memory and it's a bit slow. This kind of thing, you can just go, actually, it's slow because. And that's, I think that's the point now. It's not just, you know, it's slow. We accept that. It's now a, it's slow because what are we going to do about that? And, uh, yeah, it, more than anything, this is, this is, you know, pushing for reliability and pushing for, well, I mean, you know, SAT reliability engineer is the, is what an SRE is, uh, is about. And, you know, anything that can improve the reliability of a system is kind of, you know, my back at the moment as well. Yeah. And I think anything that improves the reliability of a system keeps me in bed at night rather than being woken up. Exactly. Right? You know, we, we as an industry have for too long gone and worn, that that kind of on call almost going into battle stance as <laughs> as the as a badge of honor for operators and and for engineers and actually we need to move away from that uh, and recognize that people need downtime people need on call to be an enjoyable experience as much as possible you know yeah. y- you should come away from on call thinking oh i learned something as opposed to oh no i've been woken up six times this week <laughs> If you could just get the alerts to come only during waking hours, that would be the <laughs> start, wouldn't it? Yeah, just switch the infrastructure off at night. <laughs> it's it's a good point. Um, one of the things that I've seen in previous employment was a lot of it comes down to how, how you're paid. So there was one of the guys on my team who was paid a flat rate for being on call. Didn't matter if he got called out. Didn't matter if he stayed in bed all night. But he was he was paid to be on the on-call rotor. So the weeks when he was on call, he went around and effectively polished everything. During working hours, he checked every system, he checked every disk, he checked the logs on everything because he knew that he wouldn't get he didn't want to get woken up. But everyone else got paid a bonus for being called out. <laughs> called out. So everyone else was like, Stu, what are you doing? You know, why are you, why are you messing around with these systems? You know, that's not, that's not your, you don't need to worry about that box. Well, no, but, but I'm on call. So it doesn't matter. And, and he was the only one that really proactively went around and logged into things, um, and made sure everything was right before he went on call. 
and the rest uh, and the rest of us and and to be fair i was as bad at this as everyone else was you know we'd we'd be sitting there and and we'd be like oh okay well i got called out last night um and even even now you know i've got this kind of ringing voice in the back of my head saying remember the uh, the um working european working time directive says you must have 11 hours sleep from when you finish your finish being on call to when you start work so you were on, you were working on that until three o'clock last night so i don't want to see you in work until 2 p.m <laughs> okay well it's going to take an hour for me to drive in okay i'm working from home today guys <laughs> okay that's fine you know and and so you're almost kind of incentivized yeah you're incentivized to not care about not being woken up and in fact the only guy that was really doing it properly was the guy that was was you know wasn't being paid extra for being called out yeah yeah i, I have to agree with that it's rubbish this industry sometimes isn't yeah. it they they actually i, I worked somewhere they switched because uh, there was a company merger and uh, the original company's policy was you get paid a weekly rate, but then you get paid for every hour that you're on call. So you ended up with people, you know, going, oh, don't worry, I'll cover you, you know, from call and all that, to something that, like, everyone hated, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I I wouldn't say the quality, I mean, I wouldn't say, like, people would uh, game the system so that they'd be on call, but they were quite happy to be on call because uh, of the extra money. Yeah, it's it's all a motivation thing, isn't it? I mean, um, yeah, wh- back when I was um, on call a couple of jobs ago, um, it was around the time my kids were young and they were waking up enough and I thought, I don't want my phone doing that as well. So at which point I did quite a lot to fix a lot of things. But yeah, the same problem. Not everyone was quite quite as motivated to uh, ma- uh, fix the same problems because it's just, ah, I'll get woken up and I'm thinking, nah, I'd rather not. Thank you very much. <laughs> it, it does come down to an incentive thing you know you you have to understand not just what's driving your systems but also what's driving your people people are a, a core part of how your it infrastructure and systems and applications run and are built it's mm. one of the reasons that that devops as a movement has been so successful because it's that philosophy of of close collaboration you're Developers have to understand your operations engineers and vice versa. Uh, and they both come with different perspectives and actually helping people understand both is important um, and, and what's important for both um, and why that's then important for the business, right? Yeah. 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 So it's definitely been a big thing for my past few years is is getting used to the um – not chucking things over the wall um not oh it's their fault or you know it's coming back and oh it's back to their fault again it's the no let's work together to fix it not just you know pass the code around and then hope someone fixes it eventually kind of thing yeah definitely and i I think with observability as well you know it's it's about almost we talked about it earlier democratizing that that data that information um you know the the previous place i worked when i first started uh, operations engineers were the only people who had, had access to the monitoring systems. So devs couldn't go and look at how their code was performing. QAs couldn't go and look to see where the performance had degraded when they swapped an application version while they were testing it. None of that, right? It was just ops. And actually, by the time I left, we, we'd kind of broken the back of that and we had developers able to look at production, help us investigate, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that know the code. Yeah. As much as I like to to say I understood their systems and I, I did reasonably well, 
at the end of the day, I didn't write it. Mm. The systems are, are only there to run the code. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, when, when I first got uh, more into the Linux sysadmin side of things, it was like we started off not really having any contact with the developers. I think that even that changed over time. So that was interesting. We had a lot more in, in interaction with the developers towards towards the end of my time there, which would have been early 2010s, mid-2010s. Yeah, I, I, I suppose another side of this is always um, breaking the stigma of being on-call as well. And it's, it's that if you can find a way to make on-call less less harsh you can one get developers um on call as well and they can start you know looking at their own issues start you know not being the central operations team just deals with everything uh, you start to you know farm out it's your code you can manage that we'll manage the platform kind of thing and we will you know work together when there's a problem on either but now you can be responsible for your own code so you're more incentivized to fix it but um again so when you was um, going back to the idea of an outage or you know an incident not entirely being a, not entirely being bad because you can take something from it and just go we could have done this better let's work on making that better rather than just oh something broke right let's just you know see who we can blame it's less about the blame now it's it's more about right what can we learn for this and improve and in some ways actually don't want to say you're looking forward to an outage but at the same time you might be looking at it as right this is something we hadn't covered let's find a way to make our application more resilient to you know not have that problem anymore or find what the you know find something to improve and you know generally that uh, brings benefits across the board for your application so i never convinced the company i used to work for uh in my in my previous job to uh, put developers on call, but that was kind of where I was going because I always wanted them to understand what on call was like. Because at the point at which they understand what on call was like, they understood our motivators as operations engineers much better than if we just sat there and explained it to them. Yeah. Because until you experience it, it's kind of almost abstract, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's something that happened to me with on call before the first time I went on it. I just thought, yeah, it looks like a problem. But the moment I went on to it, the amount of stuff I fixed, so I didn't get called out anymore. It was, yeah, it, it, it's definitely different, um, you know, conceptually compared to, you know, don't want to say in the trenches, but, you know, when it's actually happening, it's a very different thing altogether. So we've, we've talked around quite a few subjects with regards to um, observability and kind of being on call and kind of how those those two sort of things can impact one another. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about, Ewan, seeing as we've got you here with your 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 vast breadth of knowledge? I mean, vast breadth of knowledge is maybe overstating it. <laughs> In terms of observability, I think the the thing that I haven't yet worked out is where the line is between Everything is application metrics and and it's rosy and bright and we can correlate everything to I have a a system and some system logs with some some logs that kind of uh, tell me about when the system started and when it stopped and and what the boot order did in the in the startup of the machine. You know, I, I don't quite understand how that fits into the the bigger observability picture. I'm kind of starting to wonder whether I should even care. So it'd be interesting to maybe dig into that a little bit. I think that would depend on your environment. It, like if you're running bare metal, then you have to care, or VMs. If you're running, you know, 
uh, in some Kubernetes implementation or whatever, or even just like Docker Compose or something, uh, you'd have to care less about it. There's an element of um, not just in terms of, you know, what it's doing, but how quick it's doing it and whether you can, you know, cut out some processes or potentially even, you know, speed up some processes who, um, you know, when you're trying to scale out to more nodes, they don't take as long to start up or, you know, whether that's down to, you know, changing the entire operating system, something that's a lot, a lot, you know, leaner or whether you can disable half the services or potentially even use a, you know, not so much micro kernel stuff, but, you know, some of the more, you know, like AWS has got Bottle Rocket and there's other, um, you know, more cut down OSs where they'll literally only run containers and not much else. That kind of thing can help you because, you know, you're not having to start as many things. So you can react to, um, you know, increases in traffic and stuff like that quicker as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I, in my head, I think I've tried to find a single mental model that will solve this entire problem. But actually, you're right, it is very environmentally dependent. So if I'm in a Docker container or anything more lightweight than that, I probably don't really care. You know, certainly if you're thinking about serverless and serverless architectures, at that point, I don't care about anything below the application. I just need to understand how my application is running, what it's doing, where it's spending its time. Whereas you're right, if I'm running even on an EC2 instance, you know, I have to care about the the underlying OS. I have to feed and water it, even though this application is is well instrumented and has lots of metrics and and key bits of data coming off it. I still have to care about that underlying OS. I guess if you're on bare metal and you're say running like some bare metal Kubernetes or something, it would help to know which uh, physical host the container is on, and maybe by extension in a VM environment which VM it's on. Because you can then monitor, you know, if a container's a noisy neighbor, then you know at least know where where that is, and you can start digging into that. But presumably, part of that comes down to the. I mean, we previously mentioned about sort of the events. If you've got a scaling event, for example, that says I've just deployed this application to this node, that's just another event in your in your log. That that's part of your tracing. Because you then correlate back that, you know, the, the application was running on, so the trace that I'm looking at was on this node and this node and this node for these three applications. So you get all that data just as part of the data you're collecting as part of your system. Or have I misunderstood things? No, that seems to make sense. I, su- I suppose there's another element now of you trying to get to the point of almost trying to ignore the node that it's on, I mean, especially in the Kubernetes land, the whole idea is nodes can spin up and go away. I mean, you know, you've got things like spot instances and similar to that way, you know, your instances are almost not quite ephemeral, but at the same time, they will spin up and then potentially go away at some point. You should be able to handle that kind of thing, at which point this node having this many applications, potentially what you want is just be able to say, right, it's using this amount of CPU or using this amount of memory or, you know, we're getting, uh, backed up um, message queues, that kind of thing, right, scale out to another node and put it on that. You're not really bothered about, does this node function correctly anymore? It's just, have I got enough nodes to function? And um, if I've already reached my peak of the amount of nodes that should be running, that's probably an application problem because the application is spinning out of control. Um, otherwise, you're not really bothered about this server anymore. You're bothered about, can you take the load anymore? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess in, bear, in my hypothetical bare metal environment, you, you actually care about the, the host that it's running on, whereas if it's a cloud environment on VMs, then you don't. Yeah, although I suppose there's some providers that can provide bare metal as a service now as well. So in some set, some places you don't have to care about that either. As well, you can you can spin up. Yeah, there's a couple of Equinix Metal are a good example of that one that you know you can throw up a bare metal instance. And I know AWS provides some bare metal stuff as well. So yeah, in in some cases actually you don't have to care about that as well, even if it is mm. bare metal, which is a weird place to be in. But yeah, it is possible. So other than that, I don't want that bare metal so- server. I want a new one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not shiny enough that one. <laughs> and, and the truth of it is that everything fails all the time, right? So your application needs to be resilient to those things failing, whether it's running on an EC2 instance or in a Docker container or as a Lambda function, failure is inevitable and it should should deal with that. Um, I guess the challenge is knowing how much information you need versus what you don't. Yeah, it's, it's potentially going back to that whole, um, you know, obviously the metric side, but the, the signals approach of, how can you get away with much less data to indicate something rather than having everything under the sun and they're not being able to make any sense of it because it's just too much? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. One other thing to maybe touch on then is logging. So for a long time, uh, and I think for me, this this kind of came half to two thirds of the way through my, my discovery of observability and what it really means to observe things. In a in an IT context, just to be clear, um, the was this kind of discovery of of logs. And if you think back to the the IT landscape ten years ago, I, I mentioned regex at the beginning, right? You, you have to understand how to interpret your log lines and what each field is, and and all of those sorts of things, which can be really hard work for an engineer if you don't have a preset query or if they're trying to write something new that can be really hard work and i discovered that actually structured logging is a really good way to go i don't know if any of you have come across structured logging understand how to do it kind of what's the level of understanding there it's certainly nothing i've come across so I've done a little bit with it in terms of, you know, I've, I've written some stuff in Go and built some um, using some of the uh, things like Logris and um, similar libraries, and they kind of do structured logging by default, but you've still got to think about what you're going to add to that. So, for example, Logris as a library for Go uh, uses concept of labels. It can say, you know, some additional fields you can add add into there and have you know common fields that we're using across all the logs but yeah some yeah it's um kind of up, up to yourself rather than you know potentially having a preset that you come in with yeah i think the the place i've seen it work really well is uh, my background is predominantly web apps so if i get a request in i can set a bunch of fields that are context on that request so it might be what user made the request or what business do they belong to? So if it's a multi-tenanted system, what what company or customer do they does that user belong to? And then I might be able to add other contextual things depending on what's going on. You know, uh, it might be a this is what product they were trying to buy, even down to that level. And then I can set that as contextual fields. So every log line that gets logged that's related to that request just contains that context. So what that means is that you can actually start to 
say, give me all of the log lines that belong to company Y or user X. And the reason that you want it to be structured, so by structured, I mean a JSON object, or um, I've seen some people do it as CSVs. So you get comma separated fields in the in the log file. So you know exactly which where the start and end of each field is. So I mean, my personal preference is, is JSON because you get the, the key and the value as opposed to just the value. But it also means it's more machine readable. So if you think about a, a JSON or a, a file full of JSON objects, you can parse those fairly easily rather than having to write a regex pattern that pulls out particular fields or something along those lines. And a lot of the the log tooling these days will understand a structured log file and so you can just go, I want this field where it equals Y, or I want this field where it's greater than 10, and and start to really do more more quickly than you could before in terms of your log interpretation and things like that. Nice thing you can potentially do with that as well as um, a lot of stuff understands the ability of taking logs and making metrics out of them. So you can say, actually, I've had this many events that you know match this user id or this many events that have had have this and you can you know almost a threshold of oh i didn't expect that many because we didn't sell them that much or you know whatever but you know the the idea of being able to take logs and create metrics out of them does mean that you've got um you don't necessarily have to read every log line you can sometimes just go well because of the amount of logs that's a problem or the amount of logs has gone too low kind of thing you know not not just you know the contents of it but almost the trends of it as well it's turning logs into data, basically. <laughs> so it's metrics of data, time series data, if you like, and it's just a way of adding that the logs to that data in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is what I was trying to drive at earlier when I was talking about everything is just an event. If you've got structured logging, then you know there isn't really much difference between a, a metric and a, a log line and a trace. It's just a different structure. Yeah, which meant, you know, if you do want to start actually looking at the events yourselves, you can, you know probably get lost in them because i suppose that's one of the things with json very machine readable not hugely human readable but you know <laughs> at, at least you can take a look and just go oh that's what one looks like you can also take the json and make it human readable yes turn it into yaml for instance <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah i have to say when we implemented structured logging in the first application i saw it done in we may have made a mistake and put a human readable json formatter on it so it was nicer giving you structured json objects with uh, line breaks between each of the key value pairs and everything like that and then it got into the log management system and it went i don't know what this is this is like a bracket and a key value pair oh and then i've got a line that's just a key value pair and then i've got a key value pair and a closing bracket and they're all separate log lines and i went (laughs) oh yeah, we need to format that as a single line, don't we? <laughs> um, and then it all all worked beautifully. But you know, you, you kind of you have to understand how things are going to be read and how they're understood, um, so that you can get them into the right structures for your for your chosen tool. Yeah, you also have to kind of learn to read that single line JSON <laughs> JSON bit of data. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our, our developers were were smart folks, so worked out how to. Uh, it was a Java application, gave it a profile when you ran it locally so that you got nicely human-readable stuff and 
not when it was in in a production environment so oh, right kind, kind of handy but uh yeah absolutely I, I suppose one other thing to touch on with logs as well is not so much being selective about logs but just not logging you know every last little bit of information like you know um i've seen it at a previous place where they didn't just log an error but they logged the entire html page that contained the error as well because it was never a problem before until they started trying to put it into a uh, system that indexed the logs and it overwhelms the thing uh, because there was just too many log lines for you know there'd be a, a, a single error and you know 200 log lines because it's showing every single html tag that would uh, constitute that error um, which you know that's a pretty awful uh, version of you know not logging everything but at the same time you know that there's an element of should you log every single thing that happens or should you log when something goes wrong or should you you know uh, that there's kind of a balancing act it's nice to know everything but at the same time you've still got to store them logs somewhere so you can't get to the point of you know logging that it, you know a login that a user has clicked and then move the mouse and then move the mouse again and then move the mouse again you know that kind of thing may be a bit too much but logging context around the request that's definitely the kind of thing you want to log so it's yeah it, it it's as i say balancing act on what you do logs just so you know you can actually do something with it and it doesn't doesn't cost you know the uh, the GDP of a small country to store your logs. There's kind of a related thing there with Java stack traces. Just a quick shout out for Java stack traces, <laughs> where um, with Elk it logs each line by default, and then Elk, sorry for uh, listeners, uh, Elastic uh, Logs Dash Cabana, which is it's no longer a thing, I think, but um, that's what it was five ten years ago, anyway. But um, with Java stack, stack traces, um, they basically, you have a log line, log line, log line, and then an error. And the error is kind of indented by however many characters. And the really simple thing to tell, I think it was Logstash, that this is an error, is you say, uh, if if it contains a either a space or a tab, I don't even know what it is. But if, it, if it's not a character, then it's part of the, the logging, part of the error. Uh, and it's just a really simple <laughs> regex to do that. So you you know that um, this line and all lines until it's not indented again are an error, and they are part of that one event. Otherwise, each thing is a single event. And then you've got to work out how far that log line's going and whether it's getting into the uh, you know your caching system or anything, at which point you've got to find the point that you're actually dropping that log, at which point you're still processing it. It's just maybe not as far down the line as you thought. And, that, and, yeah. and that's the thing. If you can you know start using login libraries or whatever that... Don't put the, that much um, stuff around an error. Um, you know, just actually tell you the error in the context. You now, in the structure login format, much better. You know, just you know, literally every single thing with an er- error at the end isn't always useful to be thrown into a log. Mm. Although the, that the first time I've kind of looked at application logs and and thought, ah, it's a, it's actually trying to connect to a database and it can't. <laughs> What was Java? Yeah, I think that's Log4j or, or whatever the standard uh, library. Is. We don't talk about Log4j. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> or Bruno, apparently. <laughs> oh god! Oh, no. one, one for those with kids out there. So I think we've done quite well this week. Uh, we've we've gone into quite a lot of detail about observability. Um, I'm really grateful that you've uh, you've been able to join us on this show, you and it's uh, it's been it's been really interesting and really interesting getting into a subject that you hear a lot about but it's not always very clear kind of what what the context is or what it is you're talking about not what you're talking about obviously you know we're walking working together so i can always ask you but you know 
in the broader scheme of things, it's it's very useful kind of just getting an understanding as to kind of what's what's going on around observability. So thank you very much for that. And so I think it's time for us to wrap up this week, unless uh, unless we, we want to mention anything else. Nope. I could mention that Dave does our audio production and also that we're proud members of the Other Side Podcast Network. See otherside.network for more details about the network and the other member podcasts. And um, our Patreons are Andamo, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu, that's actually me. So, yeah, I'll not shout out to myself. Um, Stuart, not me, and uh, Yannick. If you've got any feedback that you want to give us, uh, you can send that to mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk or you can join our Telegram group. Uh, there's a link in the show notes and it's on the website. So if you've got any questions you want us to answer, you can contact us and uh, let us know your question. Maybe it's something about observability. Um, I think Ewan is a member of our Telegram community as well. So if you've got any specific burning questions, I'm sure Ewan would be dearly grateful to answer any of those burning questions for you. That's all right, isn't it, Ewan? Yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> Bundle! Um, <laughs> alternatively, ask in the group uh, and um, we'll, we'll try and get it answered for you for the next show. And so with that, I think, I think we're all done. So uh, thank you very much and uh, look forward to seeing you on the next show. Bye-bye. Bye. been listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more about our shows at otherside.network.